Hello, everyone, and welcome to Avatar, the podcast. I am your puppet master for the episode. <laughs> I'm going to talk like kind of Vincent Pricey for the episode. Booster Greg. And joining me is not scary in the least, Acorn Bandit. <laughs> A fluffy, lovable puppet. If you're the puppet master, does that make me like one of your accessories? Um, that makes you your own person entirely. I'm just a puppet master over here. I'm not <laughs> I'm not scheming anything. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about those those creepy dozen puppets in the cupboard stuffed in there. It's not <laughs> That's it's not what relevant. I'm thinking of. It's not relevant right now. Don't worry about it. It's a perfectly normal hobby to have for normal, non-creepy people. Completely normal. Completely not for normal. ladies who live in the middle of the woods and mm -mm. have creepy pastimes. No. Yes. Not for like Hansel and Gretel style witches. No. Yes. No. <laughs> normal. I actually used to wish that I had like a Muppet version of me. Actually, I, I, say, really? I say I used to, but I still kind of do. That's that's a little little tidbit for everyone. Because how funny would it be if I'm just sitting here? Well, for me, funny. I don't know about for you, funny. If I'm just sitting here <laughs> and I place it in front of my microphone and I'm just like going like yap 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 yap. And for me and you, it's a puppet show. It's a Muppet show. It's a Muppet show. You know, people make those as like a craft, right? You could probably commission someone to make you a Booster Greg Muppet. I know, but then what if it doesn't live up to what my expectations are? Then the dream is ruined. It's just one of those things that's better left as a dream. Versus a reality yeah. or even worse. What if I get it and it's great for like an hour and then I never touch it again. And then I just like ruin <laughs> it for myself. Dead. Yeah. Murdered. <laughs> Anyways, in case you couldn't tell from our banter today, we're covering book three, chapter eight, the puppet master, or as we like to call it, blood bending, blood bending, <laughs> lightning, boom. Q, lightning, thunder. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, um, the sound that Sokka makes. Yeah, I feel like we've made this joke before. I don't remember what we episode have. it was. We have. Oh, it was the um, Pentapuses. That's yes. what it was. Yep. Yes, Night of the Living Pentapox. <laughs> before we jump into our episode, we do have a few five-star reviews to read. And I want to say this. As of recording this, which is Sunday, July 18th, we now have officially hit a milestone on the U.S. side of <gasps> Apple Podcasts. That's Did right. Did we do it? We hit 100 total oh. reviews. My God. It happened oh this morning. God. Well, technically it happened Saturday because it takes 24 hours to update. Yeah. But it happened. So I'm very excited. 100 reviews? 100 That's reviews. Incredible. That is triple digits for anyone keeping oh track at home. Oh, my God. Thank and you we're all. not even done with book three. That is blowing my mind. Before we sat down to record, Booster Greg and I were talking about how we only have nine episodes left, according mm -hmm. to Netflix, because mm -hmm. Netflix combines episodes yep. for book three. Yes. And then after that, we're going to go through the comics. Mm -hmm. We're going to go through the Kyoshi novels. Mm -hmm. And then we're into Korra territory. Yes. That's hopefully, wild. Hopefully Avatar Studios does not release anything before we're done mm -hmm. with Korra. That's like kind of like a like a bittersweet. Like if they do, awesome. But then it's like, oh my god, how do we just like? Anyways, that's an us problem, not a you problem. <laughs> Let's read the Let's first. Let's get into review. these reviews. Yeah, yeah, do it. Yeah, our first review comes from Akon Lu thirteen. They say, "Amazing! Thank you for all the fun facts and commentary. It's like getting to watch the show over again anew." Heart. 
Oh, that's so nice. So nice. We get quite a few that have very similar sentiments to that, where they're like, I can't watch the show doing work. So this is like a great substitution or the next best thing. Like a lot of things like that. And it it makes me feel so good. Like when I'm sitting here for four hours (laughs) summarizing an episode, it's just like, it's worth it. It makes it worth it. Absolutely. The next one comes from Bales99. And they write, amazing. I love it. I love it. I love the collaboration of Acorn and Greg. Every Friday, I immediately think of this podcast. Oh, yeah. I want you to keep going forever. And when you stop, the world will crumble. Well, I don't know about all that, but I'll take it. No, I don't want the world to crumble. Or do I? No, anyways. (laughs) uh, Bales goes on to write about a character that's in Korra that we haven't met yet. So I'm going to kind of like omit that part, but may or may not be Sokka's daughter. Just going to say that. And we'll move on and we'll discuss it once we meet this character in Korra. Oh, my gosh. Yes. I like I said, I am actually excited to get to Korra now. I am too. the lineage stuff. When I remember when I started watching the first go around, I was very interested in the lineage and what happened to the characters. I'm, I'm a sucker for those like 20 years later, 100 years later, like all those mm-hmm. kind of stories. So it's going to be oh right God, up my too. alley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. Also. I think this transition is going to be better for me this time. So I've mentioned this before. Yeah. Back when I first watched Korra, I watched Avatar The Last Airbender. Then I went into the Korra seasons and it was like kind of cultural whiplash for me going into a completely different time, different cast of characters. I had to adjust to the world. This time around, we're going to be finishing Avatar and then going through the comics, which follows the characters right after the show for however long. And then we'll get into Korra. So fingers crossed that's going to help grease the wheels or pave the way for me to transition into the world of Korra. I think and I'll probably repeat this once we get into Korra, but I think also keeping in mind how advanced the Fire Nation is in terms of like their Mm -hmm. experimental stuff, I think is going to help me personally kind of like grease those wheels as you said just like really being like okay they're advanced but like is it really that big of a jump from what they were doing like with the engineer i think is what his name was right so the mechanist the mechanist the machinist mechanist mechanist machinist that guy the crazy guy (laughs) from the air temple yeah that guy anyways bales goes on to say that is all i can think of keep up the outstanding effort thank you thanks our last review comes from photography mora who writes such a great podcast love it with two exclamation points for each of those statements. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Love the enthusiasm. Thank you so much, Mora. Yes. By the way, Mora, I don't know how you changed the font on Apple Reviews, but I copy and pasted it into our doc and it's still that same font. So whatever, yeah. <laughs> whatever font voodoo that you are performing out there, keep it up. I like it. <laughs> I'm into it. All right. So now that we got all of the five-star reviews out of the way, remember, if you want your five-star review written and want to be amongst the hundred people, that's right, I said, Hundred because we have one hundred now. People who have left reviews, you can go ahead and go in the Apple Podcast app and leave a five star written review. Because remember, if it's not written, we we can't read it, and we will be sure to cover it on the show. Now, I'll probably have to do some quick math because I feel like we might run out of episodes for reviews, but we'll figure it out. Mm, yep. Let's jump into the Puppet Master. <gasps> Let's do it. <sighs> I was so excited for this episode. It's yes. one of my favorites, and I it's really I know I'm good. not alone. We have seen it pop up in our emails mm-hmm. and our reviews and our messages. So I know that this is going to be such an exciting episode. It's so good. This episode was written by Tim Hedrick and was directed by Joaquin Dos Santos. And a couple just quick trivia bits before we really dive into the summary. Yeah. 
Uh, this is actually considered to be one of the darkest episodes in the series, as this was a Halloween special released originally in October of 2007. I completely forgot about that. Yep. Yep. It has many of the conventional elements of a horror film. And there are certain like Nickelodeon, like themed after the fact days for Halloween where they play this episode or have played this episode. So that was really cool. You know what's funny? I am drinking my coffee out of a poisoned apple mug today. And that was not even on purpose. I'm not. I just have a blue cup. I'm not even drinking coffee. A blue mug. A blue mug is all I have. Hey, no. Blue as in like the full moon. Sure. That was on purpose as I (laughs) sip. (laughs) Uh, This is the only episode in book three as well that references episodes from book one in the previously on Avatar section. Wow, it's a far reach. I know. To think of how far we've come. Amazing. The episode opens up to a full moon or for you moon nerds out there, a waxing gibbous. Also, if you're a UA fan, I guess you might appreciate that as well. (laughs) Nice. Watching over Team Avatar from the sky. Sokka stands over the campfire and finishes telling a ghost story. However, this particular story is not quite as good as his previous tales. More specifically, the man with a sword for a hand. (laughs) When Toph notes that the Water Tribe slumber parties must stink, Katara chimes in with a tale of her own. This story didn't really happen to a friend of a cousin who knew some guy that this happened to. It happened to their mother, Kaya. She tells of a particularly nasty winter where a snowstorm buried the whole village for weeks. A month later, Kaya noticed that she hadn't seen her friend Nini since the storm, which, by the way, Kaya is a great friend if she hasn't seen her friend in like, if it's been weeks since it's this snowstorm and she's now noticing a month later, uh, that's besides the point. Anyway, <laughs> Kaya and some of the others went in to check on Nini's family, but when they got there, nobody was home, yet a fire was still flickering in the fireplace. Kaya stayed in the house while the men went out to search the surrounding area. When she was all alone, she heard a voice say, It's so cold and I can't get warm. I, that's my creepiest child voice that I have. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> Good effort. <laughs> I really reached for it. When Kaya turned around, she saw Nini standing by the fire. She was blue, as if she was frozen over. Kaya immediately ran outside for help. But when they went back into the house, Nini was gone. To this day, Nobody knows where Nini went, and the house remains abandoned. Sometimes, you can even see smoke coming up from the chimney, like little Nini is still trying to get warm. Oh my gosh, what a classic (laughs) ghost story. This is one of those stories that I feel are shared around the campfire when you're like a middle schooler or a grade schooler, uh, or even high school, and you're just having like a camp out with your friends or a sleepover, and you decide to get spooky and scare each other, and has all of those elements of a ghost story. I love it. Yeah, for sure. Do you think that this really happened to Kaya? Or do you think that she made it up to scare Katara a little bit? Well, in a fun way, in a playful way. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting you say that because I did make a note that Nini is one of the few Water Tribe characters who doesn't have the same structure of other Water Tribe individuals. Mm -hmm. And I actually found out that the term for that is a schwa phoneme. And schwa is the vowel sound produced when the lips, tongue, and jaw are completely relaxed. So like an example in English is the vowel sound A in the word about, Mm -hmm. about, Mm -hmm. everything's relaxed. So, you know, Katara, Sokka, Kaya, 
Mm. Nini is very different from those. So I don't know if that means it's a made up name or or what. Well, I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, I'm trying to like go through all Paku. the names that we know. Paku, Bato, <laughs> uh-huh. Hakoda, Hama. I'm, spoilers. Sorry. Ha- yep. Ham- <laughs> Hama. <laughs> Hama. I actually found it. I'll, I'll talk about Hama when, when we meet her again. Mm-hmm. But I found her name very interesting and kind of be ominous in a little bit. Well, anyways, needless to say. This story sufficiently scares the group, except Toph, I feel like. I feel like Toph is very, like, scare-resistant throughout this episode. She's very scare-resistant. Yeah. Toph the tough. There, I made the joke. It was, like, right there. Everyone was saying, or probably thinking, when is Greg going to make that joke? And I did it. There you go. The alliteration. (laughs) Low-hanging pun fruit. Low-hanging pun fruit. You're all welcome. Just then, Toph puts her hand on the ground and tells her friends that she can hear people under the mountain. And they're screaming. (sighs) Nice try. Sokka says as he relaxes his grip, assuming that this is all part of a scare attempt. But Toph stands her ground. There you go. Another low hanging <laughs> pun for him and tells him that she's serious. She definitely hears something. Katara tells Toph that she is probably just jumpy from the, all the ghost stories. And Toph tells the group that the screaming just suddenly stopped. That's spooky. That is spooky. Right when Aang admits that he's getting scared, the voice of an old woman greets them which causes Team Avatar to Scooby-Doo for the second time in the series, (laughs) revealing an elderly woman in the woods who is relatively unkempt. The woman introduces herself as Hama and apologizes for frightening the group. She puts on a friendly smile and tells the gang that she has a nearby inn and they can spend the night and enjoy some spiced tea and warm beds. The group accepts Hama's generous invitation. Oh boy. Are you ready to hear who voices Hama? Yes. Who is it? The name I didn't recognize immediately, which is shame on me after going through her IMDb page. She's voiced by Tress McNeil, who has voiced Agnes Skinner in The Simpsons, Dot Warner in The Animaniacs, Queen Una from Disenchantment, Queen Merla from the OG Voltron, Chip and Gadget from Chip and Dale's Rescue Rangers. She's been in DuckTales, Darkwing Duck. She's Babs Bunny from Tiny Toons which is really nice to see like another Tiny Toon back-to-back from last week. Yeah. Max's mom from the cartoon Mighty Max, which I have very fond memories of. Charlotte Pickles. <gasps> oh, from okay. Rugrats. Yep, yep. Angelica's mom. Arnold's mom from Hey Arnold. And she's been the voice of Daisy Duck since the year 2000. Oh my gosh. Wow, that's a lot of cartoons. Yes. Holy crap. It's a lot of like from our childhood cartoons as well as before. And she's done a lot more than that. Don't get me wrong. So, you know, don't at me and be like, you missed this thing because I know it went on forever, her page. Oh my gosh. Those are just things that really jumped out to me and maybe some of the more recent stuff. Anyways, at Hama's Inn, our heroes enjoy the aforementioned spiced tea in a cozy little inn that lies atop a small hill, which has crazy Miyazaki vibes for me again. That's true. Like Granny's house in the woods. Yep. Yeah. Spirited away. Yeah. Le- yeah. 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 Exactly. Katara thanks Hama for letting the group stay the night and compliments the end itself, calling it lovely. I do have some lost lore that I found, yes. which adds a little bit of creep factor to Hama early mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. So Hama's inn is located in a small village in the central area of the Fire Nation. It's also under a mountain where the people are kept. And we can see the very first scene kind of cuts to the mountain and shows how far it rises above the trees in the distance. Mm. Just like a lot of other locations that we've seen so far, that mountain was based on Iceland's Queen Mountain. So if you're interested, Google Queen Mountain, and it'll probably look very similar to Hama's Mountain. 
But Hama acquired this small inn several years before the end of the Hundred Year War when the previous owner mysteriously vanished. Could they be the first captive under the mountain, maybe? I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say absolutely yes. yes Yeah, yeah. Head cannon. Yep. Yes. Uh, What I found very interesting about Hama, more her name specifically, is that the majority of the water tribe people that we've met, except for Bato, have had like a hard K in their name. And that's because we've Mm -hmm. met a lot of people who've been like the Katara Saka family. And hers doesn't really have that. So like right there, I was like, hmm, interesting. Like a little like vague kind of like foreshadowing kind of maybe. It's like an indication of some kind. It's like she's a little different from the other Southern Water Tribe members. Exactly. Exactly. And the fact that they also made a point to kind of have the Nini story, which we just talked Mm -hmm. about and how her name doesn't match any of like the natural naming conventions of the Water Tribe. Maybe they're kind of like trying to draw that parallel where like keep your eye on this one. Besides the fact that she's a creepy old lady in the middle of the woods for no reason in the middle of the night. Yep. So Katara thanks Hama for letting the group stay the night. And Hama kind of just looks at her and says, aren't you sweet? You know, you should be careful. People have been disappearing. That sounds, I don't know who that sounds like, but it doesn't sound like her. (laughs) Anyways, people have been disappearing in those woods you were camping in, Hama tells her guests. When Sokka asks her to elaborate, she continues by telling them when the moon is full, people walk into the woods and they don't come out. Hama assures her guests that they are completely safe at her inn and offers to show them to their rooms for a good night's rest. Overnight, this is my favorite scene right here in the whole episode. <laughs> and everyone, I think. Of course it would be. Yes, and I don't think anyone's surprised by this. Overnight, Sokka tries to get some sleep, but the creaking of the old bones of the house causes Momo to jump into bed with Sokka. Both are terrified, and Sokka questions if he'll get any sleep this evening. He does, of course, like after a couple seconds in my mind, yep. <laughs> he is passed out, butt up in the air, drooling on a pillow, fast asleep. With his hair down. With his hair down. Hama wakes up Sokka the next morning, who has found himself on the floor and is just kind of looking up. And in traditional oh Sokka fashion, he's the last one to wake up. Everyone's yep. watching him being like, all right, let's go shopping. Yep. I like the transition too, because I don't think we've seen Sokka with his hair down in a very, very long time. So it goes from him being all disheveled and unkempt and bedhead to his face in the market with his hair up and he's holding like this basket over his shoulder and he's just not happy to be there. Mm -mm, He wants to be mm -mm. back in bed. He always wants to be in bed and I can relate. Mm -hmm. At the marketplace, Katara notes that Mr. Yao seems to have a thing for Hama. And she should go back and see if he'll give her any free Komodo sausages. You would have me use my feminine charms to take advantage of that poor man? Hama asks sternly, which eventually turns into a smile. As she says, the two of them will get along swimmingly. That's a direct quote. Swimmingly foreshadowing. That's a good note. Yep. Because as we know, Hama already knows that Katara is water tribe. Mm-hmm. So she's like putting these little things out there to be like, okay, I know, I know, but like not saying it yet. So she doesn't freak everyone out. We overhear a conversation in the background between a merchant and a customer about how the full moon causes not only terror amongst the villagers, but it also holds up commerce, which in turn affects the economy. The true nightmare of the capitalist. That's me saying that. <laughs> they didn't really say all this commerce stuff, but the gist of it was they, they can't go out and get their deliveries because they're worried because it's the full moon, which would have a butterfly effect. Mm-hmm. And a previous delivery boy has gone missing in the woods. And so yes. the shop owner is like, I'm just going to wait. I can't afford to lose another delivery boy. Technically, I guess it's creating jobs. 
It's the same job, but it's creating it, <laughs> cool. I guess. People disappearing in the woods. Weird stuff happening during full moons. This just reeks of spirit world shenanigans, Sokka tells Toph and Aang as they trail behind Hama and Katara. Aang suggests that they walk around town to find out what the townspeople did to the environment to make the spirits mad. And then you can just sew up this little mystery lickety split, Avatar style, Sokka adds. Helping people, that's what I do. Aang smiles proudly. <laughs> I love this little exchange. I do too. It's really wholesome. I also like the fact that they're bringing spirits into this because I feel like yeah. after everything they've gone through, it's a very reasonable assumption mm -hmm. that spirits are behind what's happening in the town. Well, also, it's almost exactly what happened over with Hey Bye. Yeah, in the Winter Solstice episode. That's right. Yeah. So like, it's a, it's a nice little callback to previous episodes, but they kind of like make this statement. This They bring in the exposition. So like, if you haven't seen that episode, because back in 2007, continuity wasn't really a thing that networks like to preserve. So, you know, if you didn't get to see it or whatever, no big deal. They got you covered. It's fine. But if you did, you'll note that nice little callback to Hey mm -hmm. Bye. Hama tells the group to take their purchases back to the inn. She has a couple more errands that she needs to run, and she will return in a little while. When Sokka notes that Hama lives in a mysterious town, the old woman looks Sokka straight in the eyes with a dead smile and says, mysterious town for mysterious children. <laughs> the ominous exit definitely leaves Sokka suspicious of Hama as he gives off that kind of like, what was that about look when she walks away? Mm -hmm. When Team Avatar returns to the inn, Sokka notes that Hamas does seem a bit strange, almost like she either knows something or she's hiding something. Katara immediately jumps to the defense of Hama and tells Sokka that he's being ridiculous. Hama is a perfectly nice woman who took them in out of the goodness of her heart. And she kind of reminds Katara of Grand Grand. Did you notice in that moment she holds up a cabbage and there's yeah. a face in the cabbage? And it looks like Grand Grand. <laughs> Yep, looks like Grand Grand. Yep. I do just I'm gonna just say this and we're gonna move on. Does everyone remember when Katara defended someone else? <laughs> specifically to Sokka? Someone whose name starts with J and ends with Et? Yes. Yes. Remember <laughs> that? I'm beginning yep. to think that Katara is not a great judge of character. She sees the good in people to her own detriments at times, yes. Mm-hmm. But also, like, I feel like she tries extra hard when she sees the good in people and then they're treating her exactly how she wants to be treated in that yes. moment. Yep. And yeah. then she gets protective and defends mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. And yep, Sokka just cuts straight to the mystery and goes, yep. OK, what's going on here? If you give off a even slightly off vibe to Sokka, he is like gunning for you and trying to figure <laughs> yep. out what your deal is. Yep. After a bit of a back and forth, Sokka decides to snoop around the inn. Sokka leads the group with his sister protesting behind them to a cupboard. When he opens it, several puppets fall out. Aang notes that having puppets stuffed in a cupboard is pretty creepy. But Katara stuffs the puppets back in and notes that there's nothing creepy about having a hobby. A perfectly normal, uncreepy, sure. completely fine hobby. <laughs> and by the way, they're not like Muppet puppets, if you re don't remember. They are like yeah. full on creepy nutcracker looking but like yeah. pinocchio style like wooden ball joint marionettes yeah. Yep. yeah 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 if you are a patron by the way and you, you get our doodle page you'll see that i drew a puppet so i was i was doodling while i was watching this episode for like the second or third <laughs> it's time. actually really good i loved I liked it. it thank you Sokka makes his way to the attic and tries to open a locked door Sokka notes that not creepy old women do not have locked doors 
He looks through the keyhole and sees a small box sitting in the middle of the room, and that's it. He then uses his sword to pick the lock, and the group cautiously walks up to the small box. By the way, picking Mm -hmm. a lock with a sword? Skillful. Actually, I do have to agree with you. That's pretty skillful. I would like to think that Pian Dao taught him that. I would like to think that too, because that seems to go along with the other lessons that Pian Dao gave him. Like a sword master has to be prepared for all eventualities. Here are all the ways you can use your sword. Or better yet, like maybe he taught him like a maneuver that like Sokka ingeniously was like, I wonder if I could do this to pick a lock. Yeah. Or that. Something like that. Something like that. Either one of those I'm totally fine with. But I thought that was like, a nice, maybe subtle callback to that episode. Mm-hmm. Toph Metal bends her bracelet into a key and eventually picks the lock, hoping to maybe find some treasure or something. I'll tell you what's in the box. Hama speaks up as Toph turns the key, which startles everyone in the group except Toph. Everyone has mm-hmm. that like really scared look and Toph just looks kind of annoyed. <laughs> yeah. So do you think that Toph heard her coming? Oh, she has to have. But she didn't like warn the group. No, she didn't. Do you think she was like so like focused on picking the lock that like she all of her senses were just like on that? I could see her being more focused on making the key the correct way because she's, you know, I imagine she's sensing the inside of the keyhole Mm -hmm. and translating that into the shape the key has to be and doing all of this like for all intents and purposes, like metal bending math. That yeah. maybe she was aware of the footsteps in the distance, but didn't fully realize how close they were until she spoke up behind them. Yeah, I was having a hard time trying to figure out where her mind was in terms of all of that. I think what you said is kind of where my head cannon is at. But her look of like not fear, her look of just annoyance was just kind of like, I can't tell if it sells it for me or ruins it for me because I feel like she'd be like, of course, the one time I'm not like using my <laughs> top senses, this happens. Or if she's just like, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell the group that there's a creepy old lady behind us. Yeah. Or maybe she was just expecting they would open the box before Hama got there. So it doesn't really matter. They would see what's in the box. That's true. That's true, too. Hama walks into the room and Sokka presents the box to her with his head down. The elderly woman opens the box to reveal an old comb. Hama admits that this is her greatest treasure because it's the last thing she owned from growing up in the Southern Water Tribe. Katara is shocked at this revelation. And is even more surprised when Hama admits that she knows that Katara and Sokka are both from the Southern Water Tribe as well. She goes on to admit that she didn't say anything because she wanted to surprise them and she overheard them talking at the campfire. She bought all the food at the market today to fix them a big Water Tribe dinner. She did have to make a few adjustments, however, as ocean kumquats are a lot like sea prunes and sea prunes are not native to this area. Aang is not thrilled about sea prunes. Because <laughs> he remembers the meal that Bato cooked yep. them in Bato of the Water Tribe. Do you think that Bato might just not be a good cook? So he didn't make the sea... Oh, no, no. But they, but Sokka and Katara like the sea prunes. Oh, yeah. They said it was just like home. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that could be nostalgia. Yeah, it could be nostalgia. It yeah. could be also an acquired taste. That's fair. But I have to say that I love the way they structured this story because there's all these little seeds of creepiness with Hama, but then Mm -hmm. you have moments where it's almost like the hope of connection overrides everything else. So it's like, she's from the Southern Water Tribe. This is huge. We know what happened to the Southern Water Tribe. So the fact that they just happened to run into someone from the Southern Water Tribe in the Fire Nation, and they're having this like really heartwarming, almost like coming home moment. Mm. It's like you're hoping it's all going to be fine. 
you're hoping it's all going to be good because this is a good thing for our characters. Yeah. I also want to note that Hama does have a design that is so similar to that of a Water Tribe member. Her eyes, while they are gray, you could imagine at one point were blue. Um, mm-hmm. Her hair, while she is all Fire Nationed up, her hair does have that like Katara Water Tribe kind of like fluff to it. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it might be like kind of straw at this point. But yeah, like once she says that, your brain goes, of course, you don't look like of any course. elderly woman from the Fire Nation or really yep. from the Earth Kingdom. Like, of course you are. Katara is relieved about the secret and admits that she knew she felt a bond with Hama right away. Sokka justifies his actions, like his suspicions, essentially, by saying that he knew that she was keeping a secret, so everyone was right. Handshakes <laughs> all around. No one was wrong. Katara punches her brother in the arm, and Sokka finally apologizes. Later that night, right before dinner, Aang runs off to the barn and feeds Appa a head of lettuce or cabbage or, or something like that. Oh, I wonder if it's the cabbage head that looks like Grand Grand. The Grand Grand cabbage head, yeah. <laughs> Momo dances in front of the Sky Bison and chitters at him. Appa opens his mouth and the vegetable rolls out and Momo snatches it and skitters off. Oh my gosh. Just <laughs> just another. I love these little moments for yeah. Appa. Appa spinning out the cabbage for Momo because mm-hmm. Momo wanted it. Mm-hmm. Appa is still best boy. For me, this scene serves as a we didn't forget about these guys. They're here. Don't worry about yes. it. They didn't, they didn't <laughs> go away. Yes. But I, I agree. I do really liked it a lot. Appa has all those stomachs, and yet he gave his portion of food that Aang gave to him to his friend Momo. That's so sweet. I don't think he gave it as much as he was just like, shut up. Fine. <laughs> I mean, there was it. some frustration there. Yeah. yeah but, yeah. you know, Appa has a heart of gold. That's true. That is very true. Moments later, back at the end, Aang tells Toph to steer clear of the sea prunes. Toph says, I thought they were ocean kumquats. Same difference, Aang says. Hama uses water bending to serve the water tribe meal, which only further delights Katara, since she has never met another water bender from their tribe before either. Hama tells Katara that this is because the Fire Nation wiped out all the others. She was the last one. So how did you end up here? Sokka asks, and Hama reveals that she was stolen from her home. Here comes the, well, part one of the backstory. <laughs> yep. Hama tells the group that the raid started 60 years ago. With each raid, the Fire Nation would round up more and more of the Southern Water Tribe benders. They did their best to hold off the invasion, but their numbers dwindled quickly until finally only Hama remained. Eventually, she too was captured and led away in chains. The Fire Nation put the water benders in terrible prisons, and only she was able to escape. When Sokka asks how she was able to escape her prison, Hama breaks down and cries, admitting that it is too painful to talk about anymore. Katara rushes over to comfort the old waterbender and admits that her family knows about loss at the hands of the Fire Nation as well. Hama tells Katara that she would like to teach the young waterbender what she knows so that Katara can carry on the southern tradition when Hama is gone. Katara excitedly accepts the offer, as learning more about the southern water tribe's lost heritage would mean everything to her. Katara bows in respect, and Hama smiles. And the camera lingers just a little too long on that old woman's <laughs> smile. Yes, it did. Mm-hmm. I have to say, it is amazing to see the Southern Water Tribe as it was in that yeah, flashback. It was. It was really cool. They have the wall built up with like a century tower. Just it's very similar to the Northern Water Tribe. It's all developed. There's more homes. It feels more cohesive, more mm. present than like the slush and the 
disrepair of the Southern Water Tribe as we saw at the start of the show. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what was really kind of cool to see was as Hama's kind of like fighting everyone off, she has a hairstyle very similar to Katara's. And behind her was a girl that looked kind of like Toph. And then there was another, it was a male warrior who had like the warrior wolf's tail. So like, oh, cool. So repurposing the hairstyles. Well, so for me, yes. But for me, it's kind of like setting up like a, a mirror to Katara. So like Hama mm-hmm. at this point now is establishing herself, whether she described her friends or not in the moment as like Katara. So then yeah. it's manipulating her essentially. Long story short. Right. Yeah. And you know, with this backstory, it really, to me at least, puts into perspective the impact of the raids oh, sure, in a yeah. way that we haven't seen before. Because when you think about it, after seeing the way the Southern Water Tribe was structured and built up, it had defenses, it had water benders as their like warriors to defend them. Over that, I actually read it was 54 years, a 54-year period, Bahama in the show says 60 plus. Mm-hmm. Over that time period, the waterbenders were removed which means they didn't have the defense they used to, which also means they weren't able to control their waters the way that they would have with the waterbenders to help them. So we learned sort of in this episode, but also later that the Fire Nation Raiders came and went over a long period of time. And basically I felt like it was kind of um, like death by a thousand cuts sort of thing. They just keep coming and taking and coming and taking. But This to me really illustrated the loss of culture that Mm. the Southern Water Tribe experienced because we see the comparison and we see what it became. And interestingly enough, there is a lot of spirit stuff in Korra. That part I remember for sure. Mm -hmm. And I was reading that the South fell out of balance with the spirits around this period of time, Mm. causing the disappearance of the Southern Lights. And that spiritual decay would continue on for decades after the conclusion of the Hundred Year War. So the impact of this, we're going to see long in Decora, which is super fascinating. Yeah. Well, you know, Hama says 60, it's really 54. Hama is, if nothing else, dramatic. And I think she like, <laughs> likes true. to maybe exaggerate certain things. Say 54, eh, close stuff to 60. Mm-hmm. For her old woman brain, I guess. Let's I don't just know. round up. We'll round up. It's, it's a better story if you're round up. I also want to just also point out that this like, mirroring effect for her versus Katara or her and Katara also kind of sets Hama up as like the dark Katara, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. really cool. So it's kind of like a cautionary tale for her about like what could happen if she doesn't illustrate any restraint, let's say. Yep. Later that day, Hama leads Katara out of town and begins to tell Katara that the reason why waterbenders are totally at home in the South Pole is because they are surrounded by snow, ice and the ocean. Hama reminds Katara that this isn't always the case as you travel the world. And Katara admits that she felt helpless in the desert. And Hama smiles. That's why you have to learn to control the water wherever it exists, she tells her pupil. Katara smiles and tells the old woman that she recently used her own sweat for water bending. Hama smiles back and approves of this train of thought, telling the young woman that she is truly thinking like a master. Hama then shows Katara that water can be pulled out of thin air. You've got to keep an open mind, Katara. There's water in places you never think about, Hama says as she freezes the water around her fingertips, creating ice claws, and then launches said ice claws into a tree nearby with precision and skill. Katara can't hide the look of admiration on her face. At this point, I think this is where Hama's like, I gotcha. 
Oh, totally. <laughs> and she's so distracted by admiring Hama's skill that she didn't catch that creepy wording. There's water in places you never yeah. think about. Yeah. I can see where this is escalating. Flowers, trees, people. <laughs> Liquid sacks. That's people, all they are. People are 80% water. <laughs> Elsewhere, Aang, Toph, and Sokka are looking for clues as to why a spirit would abduct villagers. Aang notes that this is the nicest natural setting in the Fire Nation and can't see anything that would upset a spirit. Sokka takes particular offense when Toph suggests that maybe the moon spirit just turned mean and tells the master earthbender that the moon spirit rules the sky with compassion and lunar goodness. Okay. <laughs> I love that part. He jumps to her defense. It's so good. I think a lot of people, a lot of Sokka UA shippers might be like, see, he loves her. But for me, this is like a friend defending a friend. Yeah. Like, don't talk about my good friend that way. Yeah. My good friend UA and definitely not girlfriend. <laughs> Aang asks a nearby villager about any information on the spirit that's been stealing people. The man points Aang in the direction of Old Man Ding, who is the only person to have seen the spirit and lived. By the way, Old Man Ding is misspelled in the credits of this episode. It's like Old oh, Man no. Din or something like that. Yeah. Back with Hama and Katara, the two waterbenders walk amongst a field of fire lilies. Hama tells her pupil about how much she loves the fire lilies and how they only bloom a few weeks out of the year. Hama notes that, like all living things, hint, hint, wink, wink, nod, nod, the lilies mm -hmm. are also filled with water. Katara tells Hama of the swamp benders and how they use the water and the vines to control vines. By the way, just dawning on me, mm. the swamp benders are technically bloodbending, but they're bloodbending vines. Yeah, they're bloodbending things that don't have nervous systems. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> yep. So it's maybe a good thing that the swamp benders are so removed from the rest of society because I could see that very easily translating to defending themselves against people because we're soon going to find out that it took Hama years to master this technique because I think the water, because it flows through veins and capillaries and stuff, yeah, it's a different style, but you're mm -hmm. right. The swamp benders are already sort of used to that style. It's almost like it's it's like the first step in learning how to blood bend. Yeah. I don't ever see a reality, at least in this day and age that we're currently covering, where swamp benders would blood bend because it goes against their philosophy as well. Assuming all the swamp benders subscribe to that philosophy that I mean, we've only met like five. I think there's only five now, I feel like. They could be a lot smaller than we thought. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was just we met actually, I think we, I think I'm overestimating. We actually met like, well, no, that's not right. I'm like going over it again. In my mind, we only met three, but then there were also other swamp benders that were like helping with like the propellers stuff. And okay. That's so true. Yeah. It feels like, anyways, that they're very laid back, very almost Chong esque. Yeah. And I think for that reason, too, they wouldn't necessarily go to this level and cultivate the ability to blood bend. But the possibility, the opportunity is there because of their style. Fair. Yes, yes. Yeah. It's not as big of a leap as some people might think. It's a it's a difference between a philosophy or moral compass versus just doing what you can to survive. I think is ultimately yeah. the difference between a swamp bender and a blood bender. Yep. The old woman tells Katara that it can be taken a step further. Hama bends all of the water out of the lilies, killing them instantly, and then slices a nearby stone several times horizontally. While Katara is impressed with this technique, she does note that it's a shame it killed the beautiful flowers nearby. 
Ama just kind of shrugs it off and notes that they're only flowers. And when you're in a strange land, you do what you must to survive. The old woman then tells Katara that she will go over the ultimate water bending technique tonight during the full moon. But isn't that dangerous? Katara asks. I thought people have been disappearing around here during the full moon. Oh, Katara, Hama says to her pupil as she puts her arm around her. Two master waterbenders beneath the full moon. I don't think we have anything to worry about. I sound more like, oh God, <laughs> what's his name? It just hit me. I sound more like Boomy. That's what oh this God, kind of sounds do. like. Hang. <laughs> you do sound like Boomy. <laughs> Uh, okay. Before we move on, I want to make yeah. a note about the fire lilies because we talked about the fire lilies way back in the fortune teller because we were talking about how fire lilies in the fire nation carry a similar connotation to the panda lily in the earth kingdom. And if mm. you remember, the panda lily is that rare black and white flower that grows on the rim of volcanoes. So we mentioned the fire lily back then and here they are. We're finally seeing them. Ooh. Day turns to night as the rest of the gang find old man Ding, who is boarding up his home. When Aang speaks up, it causes the old man to accidentally hammer his thumb. Ding wonders out loud why everyone keeps on calling him old man Ding, because he doesn't consider himself to be that old. But when he struggles to pick up a single board, he justifies his thought process by saying that he is young at heart. Oh, I like old man Ding. He's just this like skinny, hunched over old man. (laughs) He has so much life, so much youth in his heart. Aang helps Ding place a board on his window and asks if the old man got a good look at the spirit who took him. Ding corrects Aang and tells him that a spirit didn't take him. He actually lost the ability to control his limbs and he found himself walking up the mountain. Making puppet movements to demonstrate his point, he goes on to tell the group that no matter how hard he tried to fight it, he couldn't stop himself from walking. By the way, his puppet movements, I almost didn't include it in my write-up, but then I realized it's another foreshadowing. Where did else yep. do it? Have you seen puppets this episode? Hama's house. Boom. Connect the dots. Yep. Come on. Visual Sherlock Holmes. Clues. Yes. So good. Ding looked up for what he thought would be his last look at the full moon, only to see that the sun had started to rise and he got control of himself again and booked it back to town. Why would a spirit want to take people to a mountain? Sokka wonders out loud. And then Toph suddenly remembers hearing people screaming under the mountain from the beginning of the episode. Remember all that, people? Yeah, I know you did. And they all stare at the mountain, realizing that the missing villagers must still be there. The gang follows Toph, who uses her seismic sense to listen for the villagers, and they run off to save them. The full moon shines down on the dark forest as Hama tells Katara how, for generations, the moon has blessed waterbenders with its glow, allowing them to do incredible things. Hama breathes in and flexes a bit, causing the veins in her arms to pop out. I've never felt more alive, she says as she bathes in the glow of the full moon. Yatara looks on in horror. Her veins, it's like she's transforming into like a vampire. (laughs) I know. Wild. Toph, Sokka, and Aang run up the mountain and make their way inside a cave. Toph metal bends a heavy door that was locked shut. And when the group walks through the threshold, they see all of the missing villagers in shackles. One of the villagers tells the gang that it wasn't a spirit that brought them here. It was a witch, which causes another villager to add that while she looks like a normal old woman, she controls people like a dark puppet master. Hama! Sokka immediately recognizes the description. We have to stop Hama, Ang yells. Toph tells the boys to get Hama and she will get the villagers to safety. And they do just that. Back with Katara and Hama, Hama shares 
with her slightly freaked out pupil exactly how she escaped from the Fire Nation prison all those years ago. This is so gnarly. I love this. Part two of our backstory. The guards were always very careful to keep any water away from the benders. They would pipe in dry air and had the benders suspended away from the ground. Before giving any water, the soldiers would bind the hands and feet of their prisoners so they couldn't bend. I guess they didn't meet Boomy then. They never had Boomy to tell him to bend without <laughs> moving your arms. Because Boomy can bend with his face. Mm -hmm. Neutral Jing. It might prevent you from becoming a bloodbender. <laughs> Any sign of trouble was met with cruel retribution. Each month, however, Hama still felt the full moon's energy. And she knew there had to be something she could do to escape one day. I just have to make a note that this is so horrific, but also so realistic and I appreciate this storytelling so much. Like, yeah. again, this is very dark for a kid's show. The fact that these waterbenders were captured, mm -hmm. removed, mm -hmm. imprisoned, and put basically in like a high security lockdown yeah. where they're in suspended cages where they can't do anything else. I mean, when you think about like our prison system, you still get rec time. You can still yep. leave your cell. You can walk around. You can socialize. You can go to the yard. Like you're confined, but it's not this level. Yeah. And because they're waterbenders, they have to go the extra step of making sure they have no access to water. So like when she noted that they piped in dry air, that mm -hmm. was wild. Yeah. Like, of course they would have to. Yep. Just like similar to imprisoned, they have to ship earthbenders out into the middle of the ocean on a metal oil rig, basically, mm -hmm. just to keep them away from earth. Like- the levels, the distance that this team is going to, to tell these stories in realistic ways, like it never ceases to amaze me. Yeah. It's also very interesting to kind of think about the difference between a normal, for lack of a better term, bender versus a master bender, where yep. we saw it imprisoned that while the earthbenders were removed from their like essence of being, which is what kind of is described when you're a bender is like, you just have to, it's, it's who you are. It's, it's you. They don't discover metal bending they just kind of accept it and they just stop bending versus toff who was confined broken away from her element for maybe a couple days if not a week and she was able to kind of like discover a way to bend again and get herself free hama is the same way where all these other water benders are in prison they've given up their will to live is broken like that's it hama is just like survive 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 and she figures out how to bend again using yeah. what's around her. That's a great point. It's like almost like that tough sense where it's like she can feel the water, but very like faintly. And when the full moon comes up, she really feels it a bit better there. And she goes, oh, now I know where it's coming from. That is a great point. And you're absolutely right. The mark of a true master is resourcefulness yep. and innovation in whatever situation you're in. Yeah. Like the fact that Katara used her sweat in the last episode to be able to bend like, that in itself is a perfect example. And Hama acknowledges that and is like, yes, that's that's great. Yeah. That's a mark of, of a master of someone who's able to use their surroundings and do whatever they have to, to be able to survive. Because yeah, like going back to Toph, same situation in a metal cage, yep. nothing she can do. So what does she do? She invents a sub-style of bending to escape. It's like, yeah. oh my gosh, that's, that's what separates them from all the other benders. You're right. So one day, let's, let's join... Hama back in her prison cell. One day, Hama realizes that where there is life, there is water. She also realizes that the rats scurrying about the prison were nothing more than water sources. 
skins filled with liquid, if you will. She spent years developing the skill that would lead to her escape, blood bending. You know, this moment made me flash back to our headcanon, our theory about yeah. Monkeyazzo okay. during the, the invasion. Because so far, there are some pretty grotesque is the word that comes to mind, applications mm-hmm. for some bending. Mm-hmm. And our theory that Monkeyazzo removed all the air from the room, including from the soldier's lungs, reminds yeah. me of this. It's like the kind of application that's horrific, but at the same time, realistic. Yeah. And again, Monkeyazzo, in this headcanon theory, not confirmed continuity, but it's not that far-fetched to think of like, well, people need air to survive. I control the air. What if I just take yep. it away in like a last-ditch effort? Yep, Resourcefulness, exactly. determination, innovation right there. At the next full moon, Hama used her new technique on a guard and forced him to free her. It was the first time she walked free in decades. Hama sadistically tells Katara that once you perfect this technique, you can control anything or anyone. I do want to note, too, that bloodbending looks painful on the other person. Very. Yeah. Yep. Very, very. And um, now that Hama has been revealed officially as our antagonist in this episode, I do want to make a point that the team had so much fun coming up with a villain who was not Fire Nation. Yeah. The fact that she was from the Water Tribe was a chance to kind of change things up. And also the fact that Hama was once friends with Katara's grandmother, who we saw in the flashback, yeah. Kana, illustrated a core philosophy of the series. The fact that people are not good or evil. They are either in balance or out of balance. Yeah. And I like that this is a reoccurring theme throughout the whole series right now. Mm-hmm. And they kind of brought it up with Sokka in book one where he was like all Fire Nation or evil. They're like, well, no, some are good, some are bad. And now we're starting to see like more Earthbenders being not evil, but maybe not in the right headspace. And now we're seeing a full on evil supervillain Southern Water Tribe (laughs) waterbender. Yeah. Which is amazing. Which feels like the ultimate betrayal because two of our main protagonists are from the Southern Water Tribe. And so far, the Southern Water Tribe has been the victims of the war in the Fire Nation. And so far, it's, you know, they're in this sympathetic state where they've suffered so much. And so in one way, yeah, it totally makes sense for one of them to go off the rails and be like, I need revenge. This is unacceptable. I'm going to do whatever I possibly can within my human bending power to make them suffer for what they did. But at the same time, we've been following along with Katara and Sokka, who are morally good. Yeah. And it seems to go against everything that they stand for. And in a way, it really like tarnishes their heritage through the actions of one person. Yeah, it's it's a really cool episode, if not just to like really reinstate this point right before. Well, I would say actually we're either right before or mid book three right now. Mm hmm. Yep. So the fact that they're bringing this back up, because we haven't really seen this in a couple episodes, at least right now, means that they're really trying to reinforce what Aang said at the end of the Avatar and the Fire Lord, where he's like, yeah, like, I think that we're supposed to give everyone a second chance. That was kind of his takeaway from Roku's visions. Yeah. So again, they're kind of like showing this being like, all right, not everyone is good or bad. The Fire Lord, while voiced by Mark Hamill, and he's doing like a really like typical bad guy voice and he's not... He burned his own son and tossed him aside. Maybe he deserves a second chance too. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's not evil. Maybe is his side of the story. I don't know. I don't know about that for for Ozai. But anyways, that's <laughs> I think what yep. they're trying to go for here. That's what they're they're trying to convey. Yep. Yeah. 
Katara tells the old woman that she doesn't know if she wants that kind of power. Hama kind of goes off in that like villain kind of speech and tells Katara that it's her duty to perfect this technique and to do anything to help win the war. The way she sees it, Katara has no choice in the matter. Hama reiterates her point and reinforces it with the fact that they are the last remaining waterbenders of the Southern Water Tribe, and they have to fight the Fire Nation whenever they can, by any means necessary. Oof. Yeah. Suddenly, Katara's eyes widen as she realizes that Hama is the one kidnapping the villagers, not a spirit. They threw me in prison to rot, along with my brothers and sisters. They deserve the same. You must carry on my work. I won't, Katara yells. I won't use bloodbending, and I won't allow you to keep terrorizing this town. Hama assumes control of Katara and tells her that it was foolish to turn against her before learning this technique. There is no way out of Hama's grip, and now that she controls every muscle in Katara's body, Katara pleads for Hama to stop, her body screaming in pain, but Hama just cackles into the night. At this point, I want to make a note that bloodbending's movements kind of resembles those of Chin Na, which is a technique in Chinese martial arts that is designed to entrap or lock an opponent's limbs, Hmm. which also neutralizes their ability to fight. So yeah, it's very short, abrupt. Quick. Yeah, quick. It's not that fluid motion that we're used to seeing because Normal waterbending is based on Tai Chi. This is a completely different style and completely different technique. So I like the fact that they distinguished it visually too. Well, of course. I mean, she had to perfect it without gaining the attention of the guards. That's a good point. Yep. So she had to change how she bends because if they saw her doing like traditional bending movements, they would know. They would recognize it versus just doing like weird choppy like old lady moves. Or she wasn't old at that point, but like, you know. Choppy kind of moves. Maybe they're like, oh, she's just losing her mind in that cell. Who cares? But really, she's trying to like, yeah, interesting. Katara looks up from the pain, determined to defeat Hama. She draws water from the grass at her feet and reminds Hama that she isn't the only one who draws power from the moon and that Katara's bending is more powerful than that of Hama's. Her blood bending is useless on the water bending master. The two exchange water bending blasts, but Katara ultimately bests the old witch as Aang and Sokka run in to help. Unfortunately, they end up helping the wrong side as Hama uses her bloodbending technique to seize control of the two knuckleheads and they find themselves attacking Katara. Katara manages to freeze Aang to a tree first and apologizes. It's okay. Aang Uh yells back. I love that. I I didn't want to include that, but I loved it too much to not include it. Katara then turns her attention to her brother, who is wildly slashing away. Katara takes another water blast and freezes his arm to another tree. Yeah. I love this whole sequence. And I want to make a note specifically at the part where Katara looks up and pulls the water out of the grass and attacks Hama because there's something really special about the way that this team tells a story. And that moment, transitioning from that feeling that all is lost, Katara doesn't know this technique. She's not going to be able to break free. And then the camera goes to the moon and shows how full the moon is and then goes to Katara's face. And you see the determination come across it and the tears going down her face and her realizing that actually, no, she is able to defeat Hama because she is stronger. That is such a perfect moment. It actually reminds me a lot of like an internal sequence in a book where a character is having a realization and they're gearing up for the next attack or the next action. And they, the team did this with just like what, three shots? 
Yeah. It's so good. It was so good. It, re- it was another very like anime feeling Dragon mm-hmm. Ball Z moment kind of thing where it's just like Katara just like goes Super Saiyan right there. She's just like, <laughs> exactly. I've vested you, Frieza, kind of like thing, which was really yeah. cool. I love the, the small little pulls that the team grabs from anime or influences from like, you know, their heroes and stuff like that. And it's, yeah. it really like, breaks up kind of the flow of the show in a good way mm-hmm. where it's like okay like now this is a different kind of style but it makes it more impactful and it makes you pay attention which i really yeah, enjoy. it slows things down and presents you with things to notice versus yeah. just rushing right into the next moment like aha guitar is actually stronger you have this moment of transition where you get to be there in the moment with Katara as she's coming to this realization. Yeah. Also, just Katara is incredible and she's my favorite and I love this episode and <laughs> I'm so excited for the next part. Yeah. Don't hurt your friends, Katara. And don't let them hurt each other, Hamatons, as she breaks Aang and Sokka free from their ice shackles and pulls them towards each other with Sokka's sword pointed towards the Avatar, <gasps> ready to impale him. Katara yells out and suddenly Aang and Sokka stop. Hama finds herself no longer in control of her body and she is gently forced to the ground by Katara. Okay, we need to stop here. Yes. And we need to talk about this. Okay. Because this moment, Katara is doing the same pose, the same like make you bow down pose that Hama just used on her. Mm-hmm. Katara learned in one minute mm-hmm. what took Hama years to perfect just by watching her do it and feeling it happen to her one minute. Absolutely incredible. Yes. I do want to point this out though, not to be like raining on parades, but I do (laughs) want to point out that it is probably easier to be taught how to paint by Michelangelo than to just figure out how to paint like Michelangelo. How do you mean? So like a lot of the lessons that Katara has learned so far, I've kind of prepared her for this. And Hama has been training her for the past day or two mm-hmm. and like that uh, mentality. So she's mostly trying to manipulate Katara to be like, see, it's not that bad to just kill flowers. They'll grow back. They're fine. Leading ultimately up to just control people. It's fine. Then whatever. But she's been kind of like showing her how to do the poses. She's been like teaching her along the way. So like it's impressive that she's able to overpower Hama using her own technique. But I think it also took Hama so long to figure out this technique because a she didn't have fields to like go about in b she had to do it on the sly when no one was watching c she didn't even know it was possible so right away now katara knows it's possible because of these micro lessons leading up to it yeah i agree the micro lessons led up to it because i imagine that off screen Hama's is teaching her other concepts, but I do want to bring us back to the point that yeah. regular water bending is one style. Even in the field, when we see Hama suck the water out of the flowers, she does it in one sweeping circular motion, yep. similar to regular water bending. Oh, yeah. All of the examples that we've seen are a regular water bending style. Tonight in this forest, when she's blood bending, it's the close, contained, short movements of this other style. So I don't think that she's taught her yet what that style is and how it's different from regular water bending. And she even says in the scene, you should have learned the technique from me before you turned right. on You're me. Right. You're right. So at least for me watching the sequence, that's how I interpreted it. The fact that Katara had this done to her 
saw what Hama was doing and with her master waterbending skill was able Mm -hmm. to translate that in a split second to just act to save her friends. Because there's also that too. Her friends are flying towards each other. They're about to die. And she just, as a true master, being resourceful, once again, Mm -hmm. applied what she had just experienced and was able to do this new style without any practice. Yeah. I also wonder if, and I think we won't know this until we get to Korra, if we ever know this at all, if it's easier to do one of these like sub bending types, if you like know it exists and someone can just kind of guide you along the way. Cause I feel like discovering it is super difficult, but like, I feel like after that, if someone just kind of, and not saying that Hama did this, but I'm thinking more about metal bending specifically. Yeah. If an earthbender knows that metal bending exists and is kind of taught how to sense it, if it's just easier to do it all of a sudden than just like figuring it out. Yeah, for sure. Like yeah. it's always going to be harder to come up with something for the first time than it is to teach someone, even, yeah, yeah. you know, however short that may be. Like taking fishing, for example, if you know how to fish with a spear and then you go through the process of going, hmm, maybe if I use a stick and a string and I do this and I do that and trying different lures and different bait, like it's a process of discovery versus yeah. handing someone a fishing rod and, say, do and going, this, this. there you go. Yeah. Throw it in the water. All of these things have been tried and tested and they work. Here's a stick of dynamite. Have at it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there is, there is something to be said about that too. But I think the reason I, I love Katara so much and I think she's so incredible is yeah. the quickness of her adapting to her surroundings. Yes. That, that is, seems to be a trait in their family. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. This is really cool. Yeah, I agree. But yeah, Katara, like super impressive that she was able to overtake the woman who invented bloodbending using her yeah. own technique, figuring out on the spot and taking her down. If not only for a moment or two, because then Toph shows up with villagers and they end up binding Hama with metal shackles, telling her that she's going to be locked away forever. But Hama doesn't seem to care. Because her work is now complete. This is so twisted. Congratulations, Katara. You're a bloodbender. She laughs as she is dragged away. And Katara cries. Hama has won. I, gosh, I love this scene. Because this is like the perfect example of good storytelling in that you give your character something to want, something to desire, and then you either don't let them have it or you twist that on them. So Katara Mm -hmm. does not want to become a bloodbender, but she was forced to become a bloodbender to save her friends. And now she has to live with the consequences. She has to live with the knowledge that that is now inside of her. She now knows how to do that, which means the possibility, the opportunity is always going to be there. So that's like, that is something she has to now live with mentally. Mm -hmm. And we'll find out later that, and actually... I want to have a whole discussion, a quick discussion about bloodbending itself. Okay. So do we have anything else to mention before we dive into that? No, that's the end of the episode. Okay. Then let's talk about bloodbending because something that has come up, I have seen across the fandom is why don't more waterbenders use bloodbending? It's a technique. It's available. It's something you could use to very quickly win a fight. Well, we've touched on this in this episode, but it's a technique First of all, that only extremely advanced waterbenders can do. So it's not just something any bender can do. Similar to metal bending, you have to have the aptitude for it and then be taught it. So it's not just something you can whip out if you're a waterbender and then like win something. We're going to find out in Quora that it is something that does spread. 
similar to metal bending, you know, TOF teaches people metal bending and blood bending does get out to the public, but the difference is it is banned. It is a banned substyle yeah. of bending. So we know watching this, this is not a morally good thing to do. It's morally mm-hmm. problematic to literally control people with the blood in their bodies, but it is banned and outlawed. And a lot of people, especially our main characters, our main protagonists and the people that they come in contact with. Uh, we talked about the swamp benders, for instance, people don't just turn to this kind of thing. I think it takes a certain kind of person like Hama to be willing to do anything within their power to win a war, to win a fight or whatever. Mm. So that's another reason why bloodbending, I think, is not very prevalent either. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like a good call to like make it illegal as well, because it is too much power. And we talk about like the Fire Nation being like the bad guys, you know, or at least Ozai. But like his power ultimately is just burning things. Right. Like ruining, (laughs) leaving things in ashes. This bloodbending is a lot more terrifying to like be able to wield, to have exist, to have exist in an element. It it really is just a villain power. Everything about it is unnatural feeling and painful and like just horrible all around. Yep. Exactly. And I think there's also something like, it's also kind of a spectacle too. And I learned in researching for this episode that Mike and Brian had blood bending in mind as the ultimate waterbending technique since the very beginning, since their series Bible. Wow. Yeah. So this is something that has been on their minds since the very beginning. So it's going to play a part going into Korra. Mm -hmm. We're going to see more of it. But just, I wanted to touch on that. The fact that because it exists doesn't mean everyone's going to use it. Just because it exists doesn't mean it's cool to use. (laughs) Right, right. There are rules in this world and there are reasons why this is banned and outlawed going forward. Yeah, it's not like it just like, hey, Ma, can you get me a soda? And your Ma goes, get it yourself. And you go bloodbending. Get it for me now. (laughs) Yeah. Not like that. All right. Who is your MVP for this episode? I think I know the answer, but we still got to contractually ask. <laughs> Katara, it's mm-hmm. her episode. She needs to have the MVP award. Yep. In the past, MVP has been awarded characters who like move the plot forward and who mm-hmm. have a big role to play. I think this episode is a little different because I think Katara gets MVP because the plot and emotional impact falls on her. Yeah. And Around her, I mean, you could argue actually that Toph is an MVP because she led them to the mountain and they freed all the villagers and they were able to solve the mystery. But I think a lot of the focus is on waterbending. It's on cultural heritage. It's on Katara's path as a bender and the type of master bender that she's becoming. And so for all those reasons, I think it's Katara's episode. Yeah, I'm going to go the opposite. At first, I was considering Sokka because I love Sokka. But I realized that if Sokka had not stuck to his guns and been like, yeah, okay, she's not a creepy old lady, nothing would have changed. We would have gotten a few less jokes and that's about it. That's true. Because ultimately Hama reveals herself and Katara is going to always act the same way. I think my MVP for this episode is actually Hama for inventing a whole new subgenre of bending. Even though it's horrible. Even though it's horrific. Yes. Even (laughs) though it's all those things. It's still an achievement. It's very well done. It goes out to Hama, even though she ended up being the villain, for lack of a better term. It wasn't her necessarily as the life she led after the raids and how desperate she was and how determined she was to be free. 
That doesn't mm-hmm. excuse her from kidnapping innocent Fire Nation villagers. But again, we see this lesson that Team Avatar learned from the Jet episode where they go, okay, not all Fire Nation people are evil. Hama never learned that lesson. Yep. Maybe she should just go hang out with Jet. Oh, she can't now. Oh. Unless she blood. Bent. No, no, oh. that's too dark. Too dark. <laughs> <laughs> what is your moral of the episode? Oh, geez. This is a tough one because I feel like the episode is more informational versus like carrying a moral lesson. But I guess what it does come down to is life is not black and white. It's shades of gray. Anyone can be evil. Anyone can be good. Yeah. We're not defined by our labels or our boxes. We're defined by our actions. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's absolutely one of them. I feel like I've used my moral of the episode before. I don't remember which episode it was. But to quote the great scientist philosopher Ian Malcolm, Hamo was so preoccupied with whether or not she could bloodbend, she didn't stop to think if she should. <laughs> That's a good one. Just because you could do something doesn't mean you should or have the right to. Like yeah. there are these gray areas where rules of civilization, the laws will say, yeah, you can do that. But like there's also morality in there. Mm-hmm. So, yes. To get herself out of this horrible situation, she had to do this horrible act. I get it. Fine. That Fire Nation soldier was probably a big jerk. He probably was fine afterwards. However, that doesn't give her the excuse to go to Fire Nation towns and just hide people in mountains. By the way... Terrorize them. Yeah. What was her next step of the plan? That's a great question. I don't know. If it's murdering, one would think that she would just draw him to the mountain, murder him, and be done with it. No, I think she ultimately was looking at decades of imprisonment and... Oh, just an eye for an eye kind of thing. Just imprison yeah. all of the Fire Nation in mountains. And yeah, just, that's it. Basically. That's it. It's not a great plan. Subjecting them to the treatment that she went through. Still not a great plan because it leads no. to escape. Did she not learn that if she imprisons someone for decades and tortures them and breaks them away from what they know, that eventually they're going to learn a new subset of bending and just use it <laughs> against her. And the cycle is going to continue. Right. Yep. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, that's my moral of the episode. It's just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Yep. Love it. Yeah. All right. And that is the official end in all the time that we have for the puppet master. Yay! Such a good episode. Such a great episode. And as a quick reminder to everyone, if you want to tell us what you feel about the episode, any lessons you've learned, your MVP for the Puppet Master, you can always email us directly at avatarthepodcast at gmail.com. If you want to have your five-star written review read right here on the show, you can go ahead and go over to Apple Podcasts and leave your five-star review with a written comment or two, if you will, right there. If you want to tell us your top five still, maybe it's changed from the last time, you can, you can write us, you can leave the comment for that. Absolutely. If you want to support the podcast in any other way, do you have a Patreon that currently has the first episode of Secret Podcast up, as well as our first AMA hey. and the first Doodle pages with more coming real soon. So if you go over to patreon.com slash avatar the podcast and you are of the 100 year war tier or above, you will get access to that content right now, which is amazing. And if you want to talk to us live, you can always do so on the last Friday of every month. So this is going to be July 30th, which is right around the corner. Oh, yes, it is. another episode of Avatar. 
Avatar. We are live over at twitch.tv slash the geek generation on the last Friday of every month at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So join us there. Yeah. And if you've done all of that too, and you're still looking for more, well, my friends, I am live on twitch.tv slash boostergreg on Monday and Friday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, at 8.30 on Friday nights, we have the phone a friend segment where we phone up a friend, we ask cringy icebreaker questions, and <laughs> I have actually on my Discord, we have set up a new phone a friend forum where you can ask questions that will be answered on phone a friend Friday. There's literally so many ways that you can interact with us now. It is wild. And Acorn has ways too. Yeah, mostly online at Acorn Bandit. So you can look me up on Twitter at Acorn Bandit. Uh, Instagram's a little different. It is Joyson Studio. You can also find me on Joysons.com, which mm-hmm. is J-O-I-S-A-N-S.com. Um, but yeah, I am pretty much everywhere on the interwebs at Acorn Bandit. So find me there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Coming up next time. No sleep until the invasion. No, no, you gotta say it like, no sleep until the invasion. Like, like the Beastie oh. Boys. <laughs> well, you did it for me. Great job. There we go. Yeah. And Appa versus Momo in your dreams. <laughs> All this and more next time on Avatar, Avatar the, the podcast. podcast. Avatar, the podcast, is a proud part of the Geek Generation Network. Remember to check out all of our podcasts at thegeekgeneration.com. 